one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store, Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail23. Shopify.com slash retail23. Hi, everyone. I'm, well, it's obvious. I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season, we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders to haunted highways, this season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Some of our eagle-eared listeners, can you be eagle-eared? Do eagles have ears? You know what? It doesn't no, matter. It's eagle-eyed, Paul. But they they have to have ears, right? No, the the term is eagle-eyed. Are you when they no, see I'm a trying... tiny rabbit? When they see a rabbit, they sort of come down on a dive. Yeah, I'm not saying they, they can't see the well, rabbit, but they do hear things. They have no. ears. Speaking about hearing things, Paul, that's yes. going to become quite a part of the story. It is, but listen, before we get to the story itself, of which there are many parts, I just want to give Dad a quick nod because he was on Josh Zepp's uh, talkback show on ABC Radio a couple of days back because as Dad was flying into Sydney, coming back from Notting Hill, where listeners will know that yeah, he spent time recently, he actually saw the fire, the fire in Surrey Hills, the massive one that it, uh, engulfed a very large building and had it collapsing hours later. Dad, you talked very articulately on the radio on ABC about the fire. It was it was really nice listening and just going, oh, shit, Dad's an expert. He was a ladder driver in the fire brigade for many, many years. And you talked with great authority about fire. But you've talked about fire before because we actually did a whole season about your time in the New South Wales Fire Brigade back in, I believe, the 80s, 90s, kind of around that, that period. Mm, yep. Um, and this week's story is about fire. You, one of your, I would say, one of your most iconic stories is actually about a sort of recurring um, fire in Sydney. Remember how Luna Park used to be plagued with fires? Hmm. It was plagued because developers yeah. wanted to basically get rid of Luna Park and build apartments. Is that confirmed or is that supposition? No, no, that's the developers have always got look, it the the real estate where Luna Park is, yeah. for anyone that's seen it, it's on Sydney Harbour. You can't get better real estate. And if they could build apartments there, instead of having this sort of you know, basically historic, you know, fun park, which mm-hmm. from a financial point of view is going to earn a piddly amount of money 
for the yeah, owners compared the, the, to <laughs> apartments, luxury apartments. Yeah, I, I guess, look, technically speaking, you could fill every single bit of space with apartments and get as many people in as possible. But actually mm. what you're trying to do is have things for the people in the apartments to do and to, you know what I mean? There's got to be reasons for people to actually travel to the place and Luna Park's one of those places. Precisely, but, yeah. yeah. But for many, many years, Luna mm. Park was a ghost park. It was right. shut down. It was, it was just the developer came up with this idea that they would simply not reopen it, which is their prerogative. They own it. They don't open it. They basically think that as time goes by, people will ultimately just see this sad, weird, creepy face out the front. Yep. And it will just slide into the annals of time. And they did that very cleverly by just shutting it. And it began to deteriorate Mm -hmm. as something would that is built on a harbour with Mm -hmm. constant sea breeze and salt air. And they were playing the long game, the waiting game. Then one night, when I was a firefighter at Crow's Nest Fire Station, what used to happen, and for those that have listened to our season on my time in the fire brigade, at night time, particularly in winter, you see what appears to be smoke coming occasionally from the tops of buildings, but it's coming from the air conditioning units. And as the hot or cold air reacts with the external air, you get this sensation from a sort of a a visual point of view of smoke. And someone had called uh, the fireys down to Luna Park where they thought that there was some sort of fire. So we had the keys to get into this it, it was basically like a ghost park. It was really creepy because I'd spent my formative years. I had this incredibly rich friend who now lives in Switzerland and his dad had a Jaguar, which was very rare in the 70s. And the big thrill, they used to take a group of friends to Luna Park. And for me, it was the basically the highlight of my year because the family were wealthy. They basically gave us tickets, unlimited rides, and it was and I so I have really, really fond memories. And Coney Island that's at the very back of the park is indeed historically significant because all the rides are basically from the nineteen twenties, they're timber, beautifully crafted. And so we've we're sort of driving through the park and we come to the entrance of Coney Island, but it was clear to us that there was no fire. At least that's what we thought. And we actually got out of the fire engine and we were sort of hanging around, just chatting. And then I looked over and I could see that there actually was smoke coming from Coney Island. And all of a sudden, all our senses became somewhat heightened. And we went in, we actually had to break through a door into Coney Island and one of the slides, one of the 1920s wooden slides was well alight. And all of a sudden we had a potentially raging fire. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, which brings us to the, the story we're about to tell today, we put the fire out. We went around to this caged area, which is where they have this massive valve that controls the sprinkler system. Mm-hmm. And... As all fireys listening to this podcast will know, they use a leather strap. It's kind of a little bit 
kind of antiquated. It's It seems sort of a little bit odd that they don't use a material. And I understand why they use leather because the fires have got... There's also a padlock attached to the leather and it threads through this massive wheel, like a stop valve. Now, just quickly, you know you've told the story before on the show, right? I know I have, but I'm just... Great. It's very important because yep. this no, is a course, very, course. very important part of the story we're about to to go into and Mm -hmm. that is that the leather strap at Luna Park was cut and the valve the main valve had been turned off simply means fire inside all the um, the ingredients to trigger the the sprinkler system are in place but it doesn't happen because the system has been drained of water and that's what arsonists do and that's really important because what we're now about to talk, well, maybe you'd like to sort of introduce the story, Paul. Yeah, so we are now going to flash back to 1976. So it's 11.30pm, it's the 4th of December, it's a Saturday night, and in Nowra, which is where there was a big naval base, a fire broke out. Now, I'm assuming, Dad, when a fire breaks out at a military compound, it doesn't go down exactly like a regular fire, right? Like what... How, how different is this to a regular fire? Very, very complicated. You, it's Commonwealth property. Mm-hmm. Being a, um, having been a, a New South Wales police officer, there are certain areas that are difficult. Um, Commonwealth, because people get very particular, the, the different agencies. The Commonwealth agencies they are sort of very broad-based. They work under different legislation. Yep. And the New South Wales Police mm-hmm. and the Fireys, Federal. they basically have to get permission right. to go onto Commonwealth property, particularly Commonwealth property that is of a military nature. Just quickly, there's the, okay, so there's military police, right? And there's, you know, federal police and whatnot. So there's different types of police Correct. for policing different types of places. Exactly. A, Foreign embassy has its own security force who are allowed to do that. Is there an equivalent? If you get to a naval base, is there a small on-site, you know, um, Commonwealth Fire Brigade, or do they have to actually, in, because of the specificity of the service offered, do they have to then kind of, in, uh, you know, cooperate with regular fireys? Well, does it make the, sense? Yeah, it does. But the hmm. the navy, yep. have got their own highly trained firefighters. Okay. Imagine if you're on a ship. You have an uncle Paul that is a sailor. Yep. Who who is an active sailor and he works on ships. If there's a fire at sea, they're not going to be able to call the local fire brigade. Mm. And they really really have to have to nail that fire, particularly yep. if they're, you know, thousands of miles away from land. Mm-hmm. So they're highly trained. So they have resources that will enable them to put a fire out. But this particular fire was so big, so catastrophic. To this day, it's regarded as the worst fire in terms of a military fire yeah. that has ever taken place in peacetime in Australia. I'm assuming part of what made it so bad was the fact that, I mean, like I said before, 4th of December, I don't know what kind of hours, what what sort of holidays the Navy takes, but I'm assuming 
December is not a particularly busy time mm. for a naval base, so I'm guessing there's less people around to deal with this sort of thing, right? Yeah. Like it would have been pretty quiet, and also 11:30 at night. Yeah. If this had happened in the middle of the year during drills, it, shit would have been sorted out pretty quick, right? Correct. Yeah. So a lot of people were away, and a lot of sailors, a lot of them were interstate. So uh-huh. the, the whole the whole place was basically in sort of it was a shutdown. These particular um, they're tracker aircraft. Um, yeah. They're they're very specialized. They're they're not high speed. They're not sort of supersonic jets. You Hang know, on, just just quickly, I was going to actually ask mm. a bit of an inventory, I guess. So it's about ten k southwest from Nowra, and uh, it's not too far from Jervis Bay. And I was there recently, actually. Tegan and I went to Jervis Bay on our way up to Sydney on a little road trip. So mm. I know the area, mm. and I've got a list here. So helicopters. VIP and Grumman SE2 tracker aircraft, they're the ones that are going to be pretty pivotal here. Skyhawk jet fighters, uh, jet train. I don't know what any of these vehicles are, but the tracker aircraft that you're talking about, um, there were 12 of them at the time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm assuming these things have a fair bit of fuel in them, which would be pretty Mm. dangerous in a fire. Yeah, avgas. Right. So... Pretty quickly, yeah. they realised that they needed some some external help, so they got in touch with the Nara Fire Brigade. Mm-hmm. And I've read some of the accounts of the fireys, like as discussed on ABC Radio uh, a few days ago, the fireys that would have been going to the fire in Sydney that made world news. Mm-hmm. They would have very quickly got the sense particularly the first crew that rocked up. Remember in every disaster, there's always that first group of fires, police, ambos, paramedics, whatever. There's that initial group that are first on scene and what they see, they then transmit over the radio. And a good radio operator will be able to sense just in the tonal sort of characterization of the way they're delivering the messages to, that they can almost, it's as though they're there, they're listening to the... Because you can't be normal and very, you can think you're being very calm, but when you're watching something so momentous, you begin to sort of, it, it, it comes through your voice and, and you know, the control, the radio, the, the, the control center would be taking this into consideration. And it's the same at this fire at the naval base. They... They realise they've got. I mean, it's it's a powder keg. It's it's a hanger, huge hanger, seventy metres long. That's one and a half Olympic swimming pools. Yeah, it's incredibly high. It's housing twelve or so aircraft, all with varying amounts of fuel in their, uh, you know, in their in their wings, because that's with the wings. I don't know with the Opal, but that's where a lot of the fuels kept. What? Planes. Haven't you ever noticed if you next time you go to an airport and look at the big planes being refueled? Yeah, they're, they're the fuel's in the wings. What? Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? I don't like that. Well, has to be has to go somewhere. That's weird. Okay, so hang on. Look, we haven't really established. Okay, so eleven thirty p.m. fourth of December, nineteen seventy six. Huge aircraft hangar outside of Nowra. Mm. People notice there's a fire. How advanced is the fire by the time people actually notice what's happening? I'm very curious as to the evolution of this thing. Does okay, that make sense? Well, I, I, I understand, and I'd like to sort of explain 
how it became so big so quickly, but I'm not yeah. going to tell you at this stage. Because it's, <laughs> okay. it's a bit of a, a reveal. Yeah, sure. No, I, I really, love it. This, this, this case is, on many levels, uh, I said to you before we started recording that it's, it's actually, in my opinion, a tremendously sad story. And it's not sad because of the damage to the, the aircraft. I don't, I don't care about that. What I care about, which will be revealed, is the, um, is the end of the story. We get to find out more. And I don't want to talk about why it was so, such an inferno so quickly at this stage. The fireys that were rocking up to this fire from Nara. They, funnily enough, they, they realised it was a pretty big thing. They didn't know it was a hangar at that stage. They didn't know there were numerous aircraft involved. One of the um, firemen um, said to his colleagues en route, oh, it, it must be a really large tractor on fire, which is a very interesting thing to say. Um, I think that's sort of a bit of a, there's a country twist on that because someone in the city would not, make reference to a tractor. Okay. Uh, when they when the fireys rock up to the base, Paul, they have to be invited onto the property. Like with vampires. They don't just, <laughs> you know, they, they don't just barrel through. I mean, right, sure, they can't, so they can't just assert their authority and barge through the they, gates. They, they can't. It's, yeah. it's invitation only. Yep, makes sense. And also for the police. Yep. And when they get there, they realise mm. that it's, it's a major incident. Those sailors that were still working, some of those sailors committed acts of extreme bravery and heroism. Um, some of them used their own motor vehicles. They drove basically into the inferno. They attached ropes to the front of these uh, you know, aircraft. Uh-huh. And with their own cars in this inferno, they pulled them out of the hangar. That's the desperation. The, the monetary value of these, of these aircraft at the time was in excess of $50 million. But if, if it happened today, it would be in the hundreds of millions. So it had a very, very big financial impact. And of course, it took away a lot of our capability um, because a lot of these vehicles, these these craft, are used by the military. And they're also training um, craft that, that train naval pilots. It was, it was a, from that perspective, it was a catastrophic event. But once the fire was put out, then they began to realise that potentially it may be a crime scene and it had to be investigated thoroughly. And one of the okay. first things they found is they went into the room which held the stop valve for the entire sprinkler system for that particular hangar. And guess what, Paul? What? The strap, the leather strap, <laughs> had been yep. cut. Okay. Okay. Not only yep. had it been cut and turned off the entire system, which indicates that there was a premeditated um, motive 
for someone to come in, cut the strap, turn the, the main wheel valve off so that once the fire started, there would be no sprinkler system. Right. And also next to the cut strap and sprinkler valve was a pair of chrome-plated pliers. Okay? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yep. Those pliers are pivotal in this story in that if they had not have been there, mm-hmm. this case would be unsolved. Interesting. So literally the smoke, well, smoking gun equivalent was left there. Correct. Now, what they needed to do, the military then obviously have... I mean, the military, to my knowledge, don't have arson investigators. They have they have police, military police, mm-hmm. but they needed to get some hardcore expert assistance. Yep. And if you were to see that scene that I've just described to you, Paul, can you think of a particular person within the New South Wales Police Force that you might initially think maybe very very helpful? Think about I... someone maybe hot handling something. What would you do? A pair of chrome-plated pliers, which is the perfect surface to lift a fingerprint off. Correct. Okay. Brilliant. Now, the first thing that the police did when they came to that particular hangar, Mm -hmm. they explained to the the military that it needed to be cordoned off. Okay. So it had 24-hour security. They had an incredibly big task ahead. So the police brought in detectives from certain squads. They brought in Wollongong Scientific Investigation Section. They brought in some fingerprint experts from Sydney. And they lifted, the term that's used in fingerprint terminology, they lifted some latent 
latent being prints that were left before the, you know, in, before in time, and they lifted some prints. Now, they're, 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 it wasn't a lot of fingerprint material, but it was enough to at least photograph, file, put aside. Then they began the incredibly involved procedure of figuring out what happened. So what they did, because it's such a big area, they then divided it into 12 sort of compartments. And they also brought in aviation experts yep. that, that just, they have not sort of a knowledge about planes because it's very specific. And they started to work on this particular case. They didn't actually know. I mean, there was a sort of a hint that it was arson in terms of the stop stop valve, but that's not proof. But the smoking gun pole, one mm. of the most fascinating things that was found by one of the experts that they brought in from the aviation authority, yeah, was and get ready for this. On one of the planes, the fuel valve was in the open position. Which is very, very interesting and damning. And then later on, they found a second aircraft with the fuel valve open. Now, what does that tell you? Well, someone's used the fuel from those aircraft as an accelerant. I mean, how do you get the how do you get the fuel out of the aircraft? You just turn the valve and it just pulls out. That's it. Okay. Open the valve and it just goes all over the floor. And that's why I did what I mentioned before, why the fire was so incredibly intense. There was jet fuel, fuel, jet fuel, yep. all yep. over the place. Okay. It, would have, it would have been a frightening inferno. If they hadn't towed, and again, we need to really stress this, quite a few of the naval officers on the base at the time received actual commendations for, I believe, using their own cars. Correct. That's to right. tow as many of the planes out of the fire as they could. Now, I'm assuming that's not because they love those planes. I'm assuming it's because the fire would have been much, much, much worse if more jet fuel had been exposed to the fire. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Or was it a was it a kind of a duty based sentimental attachment no, to their vehicles? No, I think um, you know if they saw an opportunity. Yeah. Um, look, people do funny things under extreme duress. Um, you know with adrenaline coursing through one's veins Mm -hmm. these things can sometimes be seen as extreme acts of bravery but also without sort of denigrating the individuals it can also be seen as foolhardy yeah okay because these things can go south and people can die uh all sorts of things can happen um yeah but they clearly had a case of arson Now, the police did something very, very interesting. They, and this is pretty interesting and statistically quite, you know, full on, and that is that they they had to get the fingerprints of all the personnel on the base. Would you hazard a guess as to how many sets of fingerprints they had to get, Paul? Can't even begin to guess. I'm guessing... 2,000 pairs. Yeah. 2,000 sets of prints. They made it very clear mm-hmm. and very they were very clever that it was it was not mandatory. It was a voluntary voluntary situation. Does that mean if somebody refuses they go straight to the top of a suspect list? 
um, unofficially that may draw the crabs, but there are people for various reasons that would just think, um, no, I'm not going to do it. And here's something interesting, listeners, that I find um, very, very interesting. And that is that the, the New South Wales Police Force at the time stressed to all the naval personnel that if they gave their fingerprints and they were found innocent, all the fingerprints would be destroyed. Uh, fun fact, everyone, that's not correct because I personally experienced that very same scenario many times at the Central Fingerprint Bureau where people were told their prints would be destroyed and they never were. So that's, that's basically a lie. Okay. Um, and, it's, and that's a fact. So all those people that had their prints, even if you witnessed them being destroyed in front of you, they'd, the police, the, the Fingerprint Bureau took another copy. Uh, fun fact, which I always okay. like to tell people. So it was a two-part questionnaire. You had, to, well, you submitted your fingerprints, and but then they also, perhaps more importantly, and this is very clever uh, of the police questioning the way they set up this document. They asked questions about had you ever been near or in the hangar. Because what they're trying to do, and very cleverly, yeah. is get you to sign a document to say you were never there. Then they hit you up with, if they do identify you from the latent prints, it's a double whammy. You said you were never there. Fingerprints don't lie. And you're fucked, basically. So that's clever. Okay. And they had to go to a lot of trouble to get the prints. People were interstate. And... People were interstate, and it was a sort of a very long, protracted, um, you know, investigation. And there was a detective sergeant working in Sydney, a fingerprint yep. expert. He had to go through literally thousands of people's prints. Now, as an aside to this particular story, listeners, at the time... There was a heat wave in Nara, yeah, and it proved very, very difficult for the police to get fingerprints because people were sweating profusely. So they came up with this crazy idea that I've never heard of, and it kind of makes sense. They, before they fingerprinted every single person, bearing in mind it's two thousand people, they got everyone to wash or wipe their hands with methylated spirits, which dries your hands out. And then they inked them up quickly and they, they, they got all the prints. So picture this guy up in Sydney, one guy, a fingerprint expert, which means he's got more than 10 years experience, sitting there for weeks and weeks going through the latent prints, which were, you know, not a lot to go on. Yep. And one day, a few weeks the, after the fire. On the 19th of January, 77, yeah, so a little while after. He, he struck gold and he came up with a name and it was a, um, a sailor yep. and he was 19 years of age. Graham John Trent, is that correct? Correct. Yep, okay. And I'm not a bleeding heart, listeners, 
but I've read all the court transcripts from a medical perspective. And um, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story. The police uh, interviewed him. Yep. He was above average intelligence. He got top marks in all his exams. He, he was getting in the 90s for his exams. He was highly regarded by senior naval uh, officials yeah. and his colleagues. Uh, he was affable. He was, he was, you know. I'm going to go ahead and guess that he had some repetitive trauma visited on him that kind of made him snap. Is that a, am I far off the mark? Um, he didn't really snap, but I'd like to talk through what he did that night. Yeah, please do. Please do. He'd been out with friends. He'd been to the drive-in picture theatre. He'd been to a bar. Uh, he'd been to a naval sort of a pantomime, you know, like a theatrical uh, presentation. Mm-hmm. And a little while prior to this event, he was doing an examination uh, for promotion. Twice during the exam, he fell asleep. He complained to his friends and colleagues and also critically medical staff, that he was experiencing, um, he was hallucinating, he was experiencing sort of -of out-of-body experiences, and critically, some of his colleagues who gave evidence said that very close to that night of the fire, he had, he had, um, he he, went sleepwalking, Paul, yeah. But on one of those occasions, he actually hopped into his car and he drove to the gate and has no recollection of it. Oh, that's weird. Okay. And he was tested and they did numerous spinal taps on him. And the, the, the readings on the fluid were so high that, you know... They were, they were sort of off the Richter, his readings, and they began to realise that he did in fact have a, um, you know, some, something terrible had happened to his brain. And, the, and when the police are interviewing him, he's so incredibly polite. And I've read the, the transcripts and the police are very, very kind of gentle and, and, and they were very kind and they, they asked gentle questions. And he explains how... He came home that night and he was just lying in bed and then he 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 just for no he didn't didn't understand why but he he got dressed and he made his way to this sort of a compound and he took his shoes off so he wouldn't arouse suspicion from the the guards because he was walking across pebbles and he made his way over to the hangar and he knew where everything was he knew where keys were and this is so fascinating and it's of all the stories we've ever done i what i'm about to say i just find quite extraordinary and that is that he made he uh, so he 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 cut the valve and he says that he left these chrome plated pliers he knew his fingerprints were on them and he wanted he knew he'd get caught 
Mm. And he just didn't have a problem. But he goes to the office. He gets a piece of paper, probably A4. He folds that piece of paper into a paper plane. He then goes over to the planes. He, uh, he releases the fuel valves. Mm-hmm. The fuel is spilling out, yeah. covering the floor. He then walks away. He stands back. He had no malice. He loved the Navy. There's nothing creepy, nothing weird, no, no vendetta, nothing. He then lights the paper plane and he throws the plane and it sails through the air oh my God. and lands in the middle of the Avgas. Don't you find that just surreal? That is fucking bizarre. Sending a plane to destroy other planes. It's just... Nuts. It's fascinating. He then saw the whole thing basically explode. And he then... And this is, this is interesting and this is, this is a classic, listeners. He then goes outside and there's a... There's a, a, a crowd beginning to sort of, you know, this is how quickly things happened. Yep. And he just sort of blended in with the group. And he was expecting to be asked to help. And he was quite happy to to lend a hand. We, we know that arsonists derive an incredible thrill from seeing the flames. Uh-huh. But that was not the case with this gentleman. And things were fairly... He was sort of underwhelmed and he wasn't asked for help and he went back to his to his uh, cabin and he went to sleep. And he was, you know, his prints were found. Subsequently, he was interviewed by the police. He was court-martialed and he was found not guilty on the grounds of of severe um, mental, and there were physical problems to do with his brain. Right. But he was also interviewed. He was interviewed by some of the most extraordinary doctors and psychiatrists in the land. And it's interesting that they used surgeons who felt that he had a terrible, terrible problem. He'd had some sort of massive sort of aneurysm in his brain, but also from a psychiatric perspective, he just had no concept of of the of the of the dangers possibly to other people. Um, he was unaware. And I feel, after reading all the information, that the the right decision was made. And it's a sad story. I find it sad, not because of the aircraft, but because he was a young guy who seemingly had everything going for him. He was he was dearly liked throughout the the rank and file yep. of the navy, and he was brilliant. His examination results were extraordinary. They said he sailed through all the exams in second gear. He just cruised through, and and he didn't have any sort of Hatred, or do we know what happened to him afterwards? Do we know? No, I, I, where I, he ended up, or I'd like to, I'd like to know. I'd like to find out. But uh, look, he, on the balance of probabilities, unless he his illness was terminal, yeah, he may well be 
Well, I'm just thinking, Paul, he was 19 and I was 16. So he's now hmm. 60... How old is he? 66? No, no, younger, sorry. He'd be 60. Hmm. Or older. Interestingly, yeah, Dad, anyway. in... um. There was a massive fire in Curran, which is quite near the base, in I believe twenty twenty. Am I remembering this right? Pretty recent, basically, and uh, it was on New Year's Eve, um, and I believe they had to get the aviation air support team to protect the base from fire. Hmm. Again, hmm. Um, it's interesting if you actually research the HMAS Albatross uh, and fire. You get quite a few results. Mm. Mm. It's it's very odd. Yeah. yeah, Paul, it's a fascinating story, and I feel it's very sort of it's a good segue from this tumultuous week we've had, where I first saw that building, that inferno, from my mm-hmm. plane window. Yeah, really bizarre. Um, and it's interesting how often the fire brigade stuff does sort of come back up. I would love, by the way, I would love to write a book about your time in the fire brigade. I really, I'd really love to. I think there's a book in it. Um, Sounds good. I'd love, to, love to give it a crack. Anyway, that is the very strange and sad story of one of Australia's biggest arsons. I mean, would you say arson as a as a is that mm. grammatically correct? No, it's spot on. Great. Very, very big, very strange case. Uh, we're glad you got to spend another week with us here at Loose Units HQ, which is actually, you know, my office and dad's kitchen. But we are very much hoping to get back into live venues very, very soon again. So make sure you um, stay eagle-eared over that one. Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, make sure you hit us up on Facebook or, yeah, hit us up on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Loose Units. But we will be back on Friday morning with a brand new episode of Loose Ends, so make sure you're there for that. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll see you soon. Bye, everyone. Cheerio. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify in store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.